Um, I filed an equal protection challenge, essentially arguing that the law was racist in its intent and its effect, and prevailed on that motion. So the case was dismissed, and it's currently on appeal. A federal public defender based in Reno recently battled the United States government in court, and she won. Her case involved a man who illegally re-entered the United States from Mexico after having already been deported. The man's attorney, Lauren Gorman, said the law criminalizing re-entry into the U.S. was based on blatant racism and violates the Equal Protection Clause of the Fifth Amendment. Chief Judge for the District Court of Nevada, Miranda Dew, agreed with Gorman's arguments. Welcome to the This Is Reno radio show and podcast. We are streaming on most all podcast platforms and Reno's own KWNK Community Radio on 97.7 FM. I am your host, Bob Conrad, with thisisreno.com. On today's show, we have an exclusive interview with Gorman about her case now being appealed by the Biden administration. I'm an assistant federal public defender and a senior litigator for the District of Nevada. That's a pretty heavy-duty title. What does that mean? (laughs) (laughs) Um, It means that I represent people who are accused of crimes when their adversary is the United States of America and they can't afford legal counsel, which is most people who are prosecuted. So, but it's, I'm, I'm assuming it's going to be a federal crime. Correct. Okay, so what would that entail exactly? Because some people may not know the difference between a federal versus a local crime. So there's a lot of things that can make or that can give the federal government the ability to prosecute a crime, and I won't get super nerdy on you, um, but a lot of our cases are, we call them crimmigration cases, so cases where people are prosecuted for being undocumented immigrants who have re-entered the United States after previously being removed or deported. Um, We represent a fair amount of people from Native American reservations accused of all sorts of crimes under the Indian Major Crimes Act. We represent people charged with mostly prohibited person in possession of a firearm. So if you're um, undocumented and you possess a firearm, that's a federal offense. If you have a prior conviction that is a felony or a misdemeanor crime of domestic violence, that you're prohibited from possessing a firearm. We represent people charged with all sorts of drug offenses, tax cases, so a pretty wide variety of criminal prosecutions. Tell us about this major case that you have. You you essentially prevailed um, here in Nevada on a case. We did. So in August 2021, we, um, we had previously, or I'd filed an equal protection challenge to the law itself. So the law that criminalizes re-entering the United States after you've previously been removed or deported. Um, I filed an equal protection challenge, essentially arguing that the law was racist in its intent and its effect, and prevailed on that motion. So the case was dismissed, and it's currently on appeal. And tell us about this individual, Mr. Carrillo or Carrillo? Carrillo Lopez. Carrillo Lopez. Yeah, tell, tell us about Mr. Carrillo Lopez. 
So Mr. Carrillo-Lopez, he was charged by the United States during the pandemic. He was originally charged in June 2020, so just a few months into the pandemic. And he was already serving a life sentence in the state of Nevada for a nonviolent drug offense. So he was um, rid of... Let, let me... Pardon. Hold on. Let's stop with that. What What's that all about? Um, so that's actually not particularly uncommon. Um, so he was charged with... So Nevada, it's the title of the statute is trafficking. And so trafficking actually includes simple possession of certain amounts of a drug. And so he was convicted of a drug offense, and he was serving a life with parole sentence. And then, why, the why uh, was it a large amount of drugs, or uh, why such a, a lengthy sentence for a? I don't. I should have a better answer to that. I have to look in the docket. I don't remember it being a particularly large amount of drugs, but our drug laws are relatively draconian so that that's not particularly surprising that's not an uncommon thing that we see okay so he's he's already serving time in nevada but he got charged again it sounded like yes so unclear what the prosecution was intended to accomplish um, theoretically if he was paroled or when he was paroled then if he was convicted and sentenced he could serve more time federally before ultimately being deported. Tell me, I guess, a little bit about um, what the extra charge was for and why he's why, why you ended up having this defense for him. So the defense actually had nothing to do with his specific circumstance. When his case came, it was during, obviously, a global pandemic where any sort of prosecution you would hope or expect that there was a rationale more tethered to public safety for a prosecution because for various reasons, as you may recall, this was all pre-vaccine. Anytime you're being transported between jail or prison and a courthouse, you're being touched by multiple people, you're being searched. And so it posed a particular risk to his safety. That was actually not, and to the safety of those around him, that wasn't the grounds for the motion to dismiss um, but I think it did make me think harder about digging deeper into the law that he was prosecuted under and sort of getting a better understanding of its history and why we would see that kind of prosecution at this particular moment in history. But that wasn't actually part of the legal challenge. Okay. Um, but the history of the law that he was prosecuted under is what's at issue here. Correct. So... 1929 um, was the first iteration of this law. We call it illegal reentry, I guess, for short. And during that period of time, there was essentially a compromise made in Congress. And this was between nativists and eugenicists, so people who believe that people of the Mexican race were polluting the essentially the Anglo-white gene pool of America. And there was a sort of debate in Congress between very hardcore eugenicists and nativists and Congress people who were representing states that relied upon cheap and exploitable Mexican labor, mostly for agricultural work. 
And so what ultimately came of that was this compromise in Congress that decided instead of limiting immigration from the Western Hemisphere, what we could do is instead criminalize illegal reentry. So once you were removed or deported, if you came back, then you were subject to criminal prosecution. So it sort of created this perpetual underclass of largely Mexican people who were sort of eternally at risk of being prosecuted, sent to prison, and then ultimately deported. And so, and this is not a particularly controversial proposition. Um, the government, in our case, actually agreed with us that 1929 was motivated by racism. The term I saw a lot in your filings and, and some of the, the documents uh, was racial animus, but we'll just for short call it racism or, you know, a policy based on racism. And it's my understanding that because this was particularly targeted toward people coming to America from Mexico, that it really isolated Mexicans, um, in other words. It did. Um, and so, and if you want to know sort of what ultimately happened, so I was not the first person to raise an equal protection challenge to this law. It had been previously raised in Southern California, and generally what was happening was judges were denying the motion even though the evidence of racism was was extremely overwhelming in 1929. Why, why would they deny that? So the law, and in 1952, and I will try not to be very nerdy, but the we had a, a giant project to sort of recodify immigration laws that were um, sort of all over the place. They ended up recodified in one part of our United States Code. And so illegal reentry then gets reenacted and recodified in 1952. And so some of the reason why the judges had been denying this motion that it violated equal protection was that, well, you know, this happened in 1952 that we had a reenactment. And we don't know for sure that that was motivated by racism. And so in, in at least San Diego or in the Southern District of California, the lawyers weren't even able to get a hearing to talk about this issue. And so I spent a long time thinking about what happened in American history between 1929 and 1952. And ultimately, our judge was one of the, I think, the first two judges in the United States to actually allow evidence to be heard. So, Why, why do you think that is, that, that previously the motions were getting tossed left and right, and then you get a hearing? How, how did that happen? And this is with local judge, uh, or federal, local but federal judge uh, Miranda Dew. Chief Judge Miranda Dew. Um, so I can't speak to the individual motivation of any judge that was denying a hearing in the Southern District of California. I can speculate, and I can say that very generally it's, you know, if you combine 1326 and 1325, illegal entry is, is another law that, was all, that also criminalizes um, entering the United States without documentation. They comprise a huge amount of federal prosecutions. Most people don't even know that these law exist or that these laws exist, but they are a huge amount of federal prosecutions. I think in 2015 combined, they were almost 50%. So I imagine that having an open discussion about how these laws came to be and that discussion including really 
frank conversations about racism was probably that may be a difficult conversation to have. And so, you know, I, I think that particularly the attorney who sort of led the, that challenge in the Southern District of California, her name is Kara Hartzler. And so she was, she ultimately wrote this motion. She worked with historians, with political scientists, and she couldn't even get essentially her day in court. She couldn't have um, historians and political scientists put on evidence. And judges denied it for one of two reasons. One is that some judges held that even in criminal law, if a law touches on immigration, we don't question the real reason the law exists. The law gets to stand if there's any rational reason why the law could have been passed, even if the real reason was racism. And then another reason why judges gave is that she provided no evidence that in 1952 there was independently racial animus, even though the law was essentially just reenacted, and it was actually made more punitive. There were two changes made to the law. One is that the deportation or removal didn't even have to be lawful. And the second was it expounded, it expanded the ways that you could prosecute the offense. So if you were just found in the United States, no matter where you were, the act of being found became a crime unto itself, which is why you actually have this prosecution in the District of Nevada. What was it like for you when Judge Du um, basically accepted your defense of Mr. Creo Lopez and allowed you to proceed with this? So it was it was pretty beautiful, actually. It was a really emotional moment. Just, I mean, just the fact that somebody was willing to hear about it and that we were allowed to speak openly and honestly about this law and its history and who it was impacting and why it existed was in itself a pretty... It shouldn't have felt so extraordinary. I, I think that the, it should have gotten a hearing much earlier but it was a pretty it was a pretty beautiful moment in my in my practice. Did other attorneys who have been trying to fight this same fight um, what was their response? So I think everybody was pretty overjoyed that we simply had an opportunity to present evidence. That is what we were asking for was to be heard, and so to finally be allowed to actually be heard and to have. You know, I had a historian and a political scientist testify about the events bridging 1929 and 1952, and then Congress in 1952, and what was going on in the United States and Congress in 1929. So just to be able to create this really robust record of what was going on in this country and what could have explained this law's passage and how it has so heavily impacted Latinos in the United States— was um, that in itself was was a really important moment. What happened next when you were able to present your case or your defense, I guess? So we had we had evidence from a historian from UCLA, Professor Lytle Hernandez. We had a professor from San Diego State University, Professor Ber- Professor Benjamin O'Brien Gonzalez, Gonzalez O'Brien. Um, and they were able to present a very 
I think, full picture of what was going on in the United States, particularly between 1929 and 1952, because the government had already agreed that 1929, that law was motivated by racism. So you have the same law being codified in a different section of the statute and then reenacted with a little bit of a tweak in order to make it easier to prosecute. But we focused a lot of the hearing on what was going on in the United States. So what was going on is in the during the Great Depression, or between about 1929 and 1939, you had these Mexican repatriation drives. And so 60% of those, quote, repatriated to Mexico were actually just Mexican-Americans. But these were essentially campaigns of terror during an economic downturn where um, Mexican people, both United States citizens and Mexicans alike, were being intimidated and forced to go to Mexico. And then following on the heels of what we call Mexican repatriation was the Bracero program, where it was essentially it was a series of um, agreements between the United States and Mexico where the United States brought in very cheap labor from Mexico, and it ended up being an extraordinarily exploitative program and actually spurned a lot of undocumented migration to the United States. So um, the people who were brought under the Bracero program were made to endure just humiliating and degrading treatment. They were supposed to be provided with fair wages and humane treatment, and they received none of it. They were gassed with DDT. They were forced to endure these horrific inspections at the border. And then they were pretty brutally exploited and many died. And it also spurred undocumented migration because, A, employers didn't like the red tape at all. And so they would often recruit people from Mexico to come work on farms anyway. And then people were coming from Mexico and they also wanted to avoid essentially these inspection stations at the border. And so you had a huge amount of undocumented migration during this time period, which was the Bracero program was going on during the time during 1952 when um, illegal reentry was reenacted or recodified. Okay. So what did judge do say that um, changed the course of this case? So during the hearing, I think there was a lot of listening going on. So I had the opportunity to ask questions. And then the court, of course, has the ability to ask questions. And so did the prosecutor, was able to cross-examine the witnesses. And then ultimately, Judge Dew issued an over 40-page opinion where she found that illegal reentry violated the Equal Protection Clause of the Fifth Amendment, or not clause, the Equal Protection Promise of the Fifth Amendment. I don't want to get too legal on you. The Equal Protection Clause is part of the 14th Amendment, but um, it applies to the federal government via the Fifth Amendment. And that's a pretty major decision to be to have been made by Judge Dew. It was. It was historical. It was. It is now a part of history, and that record is out there. And all from Reno, Nevada. And all from Reno, Nevada. I was very proud. But there's a new rub. Tell us about it. Well, I think there was hope for, um, I'm not sure I had much hope, but there was sort of general hope that maybe the Department of Justice wouldn't appeal. And then maybe we would give 
this challenge time to play out across different districts in the United States. Um, there were all sorts of things that the Department of Justice could do if it was concerned that it was prosecuting a law to have been found by a federal judge to be motivated by racism. And that did not happen. The Department of Justice filed an appeal, and they are currently appealing the decision to the Ninth Circuit. Um, and then I anticipate they would continue to appeal it. Um, ultimately, the United States court can choose to hear the challenge or not. Should Judge Dew's ruling stand, what would that mean for the federal government had they not appealed? Had they not appealed, mm -hmm. then, well, it wouldn't really mean much because in some ways every district court will ultimately have to make this decision. So her decision does not bind any other court. And so what could happen is the challenge can play out. The record can continue to develop even since our... Um, even since our win in the District of Nevada, there's been another district that has funded original archival research and found even more evidence of racial animus in the congressional record. And so there's essentially no big impact in letting this stand. What can happen is then the challenge percolates across different courts around the country and it plays out. And so ultimately what the appeal can do is if they prevail on appeal, then in the Ninth Circuit, that challenge essentially dies. And then in other circuits, it can continue to play out depending on what higher courts say. Should that stand, what would that mean for people who are further charged with illegal reentry? So if, for example, in the Ninth Circuit, if we prevail, then, then in the Ninth Circuit, that would be the law then you couldn't prosecute illegal reentry in the Ninth Circuit. Um, so that would have implications within our circuit. And then in other circuits, it would, again, depend on how that circuit court ruled. So that would be a pretty substantial change in terms of um, border policy. It would. Well, it would and it wouldn't. And so ultimately... You know, there's still a huge, I mean, so there's ways to enforce immigration law civilly, which is relatively common, which I think is what most people think of when they think of immigration law. They're thinking about civil law. What wouldn't happen is dedicating all of these resources to criminally prosecuting people. And mm. so those resources could then go to fight, for example, different kinds of crime. They could be used to fight violent crime or arguably more serious crimes. And so you would still see all of those, you could still see civil enforcement of immigration law, but what you wouldn't see are criminal prosecutions. So people being sent to prison for, you can be sent to prison for up to 20 years if you are convicted of illegal reentry. And so those resources would then go to prosecuting other sorts of crimes, but you would still have all of these civil enforcement mechanisms in play. And Congress can still go back to the drawing board, and they can even pass the same law. They would just have to pass it for reasons other than racism. So it would have to be uh, more across the board, not just targeted toward Mexicans coming into the U.S. So... Under equal protection, you cannot target, I mean, 
racism is generally not tolerated by the Constitution. I understand that's not necessarily the position of the Department of Justice in this litigation, but if we prevailed in the Ninth Circuit and Congress makes a decision, hey, we still want to use criminal law to um, to incarcerate people who violate immigration law, then they absolutely can do that. They just can't do it because of racism. So where where does your case stand now? What's next? So right now the government has filed their opening brief, so they've appealed, and then we will file our responsive brief. The government's going to file a reply. We'll have oral argument in the Ninth Circuit, and then ultimately the Ninth Circuit will decide. When does that happen? <laughs> so I think our responsive brief might be due in April, and then the government's not long after. And so I anticipate oral argument might be towards in the summer or towards the end of the summer, and we would have a decision after that. Okay. So maybe this year, maybe not. Correct. Okay. Um, anything else you would like to add that we haven't covered? Not sure if I have anything specifically to add. Thank you for having me on this, on this show. I think it's a really important issue. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's very, uh, uh, complex in some ways, but it's also very um, important, and I would argue a, a fairly significant or major case, you know, that occurred here in Reno. I mean, that's, that's a pretty big deal. Did you anticipate something like this to happen? Um, so I think that the historical record is pretty damning, and I think that is why it is it may have been difficult to get an evidentiary hearing in other districts. Um, what was sort of interesting about the moment that we prevailed was that this is sort of ha all happening at the same time that Nevada is sort of reckoning with, I think, um, so Pat Mc Senator Pat McCarran, it's called the McCarran-Walter Act in 1952. And so we're seeing his name being removed from the airport. So we're seeing the sort of the state of Nevada really honestly reckoning with um, with racism, with xenophobia, with anti-Semitism, all of which Senator McCarran was really known for. And this happened at sort of that exact moment when we're having, when Nevada is having this conversation about its own history um, and the legacy of racism and how it's played out in the state of Nevada. And, and continues to. And continues to. And so it was very heartening that um, the state of Nevada in some way led not only in just allowing us to make a record, but then following following the evidence to its conclusion. And I think if you reckon like in an intellectually honest way with this historical record, it's just the right decision morally under constitutional law, I mean, for every reason. And so I was really proud to, to be a Nevadan. Great. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. Taking us out this week is a new song by Reno musician Cat Hart. This tune is from the Loud as Folk record club release available at loudasfolk.com. Cause me home, it's where I want to reside. 
on my own at night Having conversations with a moon Oh, 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 Conversations with the moon just aren't the same Without you here to help me keep the cold at bay Afternoons in the sun Without you just on his front It's closing out The world is us all day Reno. I am Bob Conrad. Please visit us online at thisisreno.com.